Good to see everybody. Praise together. Uh, if you want to grab your Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11 today. Romans chapter 11. Uh, as we said earlier, if you're a guest today, we're so glad you can be with us as we worship God together. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, we're glad you can join us. Romans chapter 11, we are finishing up our series today called Solas. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Romans 11, beginning at verse 33 through 36, hear the word of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. I want to tag our text today, God's glory alone. God's glory alone. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you uh, that it is all about you. Thank you that it's not about us, because every time we think it's better making it about us, it always ends worse. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are wiser than us, you're greater than us, you're better, you're beautiful, you're more than all that we could ever be. So we're grateful for that. We pray, God, as we look to your word this morning, that you would open our eyes to see that more clearly. Help our hearts and our minds to grasp just a glimpse of your glorious self. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago, I had the uh, opportunity, the privilege to climb up the side of Mount Nebo. I don't know if any of you remember the story of Moses and Mount Nebo played a key role in Moses' story because Moses, if you remember, was punished for his rebellion against God and God said that he was not able to actually step foot in the promised land. But God graciously gave him the opportunity to at least see the promised land. That at the end of his life, he would see the promised land from afar and Mount Nebo was actually where that happened. And so here we are, this group of people, these tourists climbing up the side of Mount Nebo where thousands of years ago Moses himself had been. And we're climbing up through this red clay and these dry bushes and this rough terrain. And we climb up and as we get to the top, you know, it's thousands of feet we've been walking. We're, we're exhausted. The air is getting thinner as we go up. And we get to the peak of the mountain and we just pause. And what's amazing about Mount Nebo is when you pause at the peak, you can see the promised land. It's incredible. To, to the south, you see, uh, you see the Dead Sea. To the north, you see the city of David, Jerusalem. You see this incredible landscape. It's as if you could see for miles and miles. It was stunning. I mean, you get a glimpse of what Moses was able to kind of peer into, but never really experience in the flesh, but, but he saw it. He saw it. And there we were, taking in all that beauty, all the wonder of God's promises and His grace and everything that He was providing for the people of Israel. We, we got to kind of get a, just a glimpse of what that was like. And I tell you that story to say that that's kind of what's happening in our text today. As the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans, he is, he is climbing up this mountain of grace. 
And for 11 chapters, he's been scaling step by step by step, covering incredible terrain, things like eternity and history and how they work together, talking about things like justification and sanctification, talking about diversity and unity and the church coming together, talking about things that that are beyond our grasp. And as he's walking through chapter by chapter, he's climbing this mountain of the gospel and he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he just pauses. And he looks back at all this truth and he's led to worship. I mean, he just takes it all in and he's overwhelmed. It just kind of bursts out of him. He can't contain it. He's just overflowing with praise. And one of these most famous passages of Paul's prayers, he he has nothing but doxology to say. Nothing but praise and gratitude and glory to God. And that's what's happening in this text, because in just a moment, he's about to kind of walk back down the rest of the mountain. In chapters 12 through 16, he's going to apply the gospel and show how the intricacies of life are affected by everything that has been true. But for a moment, he just pauses and he worships. What, what is worship? Right? We've been in worship now for, I don't know, 35 minutes. And uh, what, what is worship? What, what are we doing when we gather together? What are we doing when we're outside of this building? What, what exactly is worship? That's what I want to look at today because I think many of us, if you asked, we wouldn't be able to give a clear definition of what worship really is. Or even more than a definition, we wouldn't really be able to apply it. But at its simple level, worship is this. You ready? It's, it's assigning worth to something. It's declaring over something, someone, something in your life uh, that, that it has worth, it has weight, it, it means something. It, it carries something in your life that, that affects everything else in your life. And so to worship something is to assign worth. And, and many of us, maybe you're here today and, and, and you're a believer, or you're here today and you're not a believer, we, we wouldn't apply that to other areas of life. And so we consider worship to be something that happens in this building or on YouTube or in a, in a car with some worship music or something. And, and so worship has to have music. Worship has to have a feeling to it. Worship has to have, you know, uh, Brock leading us in a song. Worship has to have something. But worship is really all of life that we apply worth to. And so it could, be, it could be with your kids. It could be your job. It could be your political party. It could be you know, your, your bank account. It could be anything in your life that you say, this has the most worth in my life. And that's, that's what we're getting at here. As Paul is erupting in praise, erupting in worship, he's helping us to see what What at the core of our life is is pushing us to worship? And so today we're we're finishing up our series that we've been calling Solas. And it's Solas because that word is Latin for alone. And and if you've been following us in this series, we've been looking at these five foundational truths from the Reformation 500 years ago. And and there's five of them that, that are alones, if you will. It's Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and now today, God's glory alone. And what that phrase means, if you want to sum it down to to just this idea, it's worship. It means that everything in life is about worship, and God, as we just sung, deserves all of it. It's His glory alone. And sometimes when you you get in the church too long and, and you've been around Christians too long... You know, your, your, your relationship with God, your spirituality, it, it just kind of, um, it turns into entertainment 
or community involvement or I don't know, pick something, right? It, it, making you feel better about Friday night, what, whatever it is. And, and it's not really about worship. And so what I want to look at today is, is what, what really fuels that kind of worship? When, when was the last time you were just overwhelmed with worship? With the glory of God. So for the next few minutes, let's look at this. How, how does worship happen? First, we have to see the unsearchable riches of God. If you're taking notes, the first thing is unsearchable riches. Look at verse 33. Paul begins his eruption of praise. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Paul celebrates these two truths about God. He's talking about God's wealth and God's wisdom. Right, his wealth, he, he's saying, he uses this word depth to communicate the abyss. It's this, this endless cavern, this bottomless place where, where if you get into the depths of who God is, you'll never find the end. And he's been talking about this all throughout the book. In chapter 2, he says, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. In chapter 9, he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And in other letters of Paul, he, he says that God is rich in mercy. And then he refers to Christ as inexhaustible in his riches. So all throughout, over and over, Paul is saying, reminding us that there is no bottom to God. That he never runs out. And that, that's just his riches. That's just his wealth. And then he turns to his wisdom, right? And his wisdom is different than his knowledge. So knowledge is one thing, but wisdom is when you apply knowledge rightly. You catch that? So wisdom is, is the way God works, not just what He knows. And so He says in these, in these verses, look at what He says. He says his, his knowledge is infinite. His wisdom is bottomless, right? His wisdom is in our wisdom. His knowledge is in our knowledge. Why? Because He's God and we're not. Just like Isaiah 55 says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God is putting a, a distance between us in such a way that, that He's saying, you are in my image, but you're also very distinct from me. There, we have things in common, but we also have things different. That I am God and you are not. And, and He uses these big words. He says that His, his judgments are, are unsearchable. His, his ways are inscrutable. Right? That, that image that he's giving there is, is actually from the Greek uh, hunting culture. It was interesting as I looked it up. It, it comes from these words that are describing when you would take a dog hunting with you and the dog would go out and they would search the trail. And if they got the scent, they, they would get on it and they would keep going and going. But if they couldn't find what they were searching for, it was this word for inscrutable. They, they would keep looking and looking and looking, but they couldn't find it. They couldn't ever get to the end of it. They couldn't control it. They couldn't contain it. It just kept going. And that's what he's saying about God. He, he's saying he's, he's beyond us. He's, he's more than us. He's greater than us. And, and that's what worship has to do. Worship has to meet a God that's beyond measure. Beyond measure. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I went to St. Augustine, and uh, they have this little shop in St. Augustine that has just hot sauce. That's all they sell. The whole shop, it's like hundreds and hundreds of bottles of hot sauce. And, and in this building, they, they've got sauce you know, all along the walls. And in the middle, they've got 
a hot sauce bar where you can try all the different flavors and sauces. And, and next to the bar, they've got a chart with all of the hot sauces and their heat level. I think it's called the Scoville scale or something like that. And, and they actually have measured each different pepper and how hot the peppers are. So you've got things like bell peppers, which are like 100 units. And then you've got a cayenne pepper, which is like 50,000 units, pretty hot. And then you've got a habanero, which is about 200,000 units. And then they have this pepper that's at the very top. They called it Pepper X. Didn't even have a name, Pepper X. Supposedly the hottest pepper they know of in the world, 3 million units. And then the, the uh, little bottle that it came in, it was the main ingredient. They called it the last dab. Like this, this if you ate it, would be the last thing you ate. It, it would just eat your insides and you would die on the spot. And so as we're looking at this, and I didn't try the, the last dab, unfortunately. Uh, but we're, we're looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, how, how do they measure pepper heat? I mean, somebody out there's got a job that their whole job is to find out how hot peppers are. They're measuring it. They're calculating it. They're looking into how, how can we put this into some kind of package that we can find out how to sell it. It's controllable. It's measurable. It's knowable. Even the pepper heat. And what Paul is saying is that God is unlike anything else in creation that can be measured. He is immeasurable. And listen, what, what that reveals to us is that our God might be too small. Not, not the true God, not, not the real God in, in Scripture and in, in life, but the God that we've kind of fabricated in our mind, that, that He's just a little bit too small. Because if the Scripture says He's immeasurable, and we've, we've kind of got Him in a box that's controllable, then He's too small. Right? We, we try to categorize Him, we count Him, we control Him, and, and where you see it the most might be, at least in my life, is, is we are cynical towards Him. I mean, it might be things that, that He's done in someone else's life, or someone he, something He's done in my life, but, but, but I don't know if I can really trust Him to do that. I mean, look at their life. Their, their life is falling apart. Their marriage is in shambles. They're on drugs. There's no way that God can actually work in their life. There's no way that God can turn their life around. I, I've decided in my life that's too much for Him. Or maybe it's not for somebody else. It's for you. Right? You've got sin in your life. You've got suffering in your life. You've got pain that's, that's deep within you. You've got stuff in your past no one even knows about. And you, you've kind of put that to the side and said, God can handle other stuff in my life, but never this. Never this. This is too much for him. I mean, let me ask you, what, what's your never with God? What's your never? What, what's the limit you've put on him and said, this is too far for God? Because I think what, what this passage is calling us in our worship is to take the limits off of God and to meet a God who's beyond our measurements. To meet a God, whatever you think about Him, He's going to be more. I mean, think about it. The moment you have a thought about God, it's already insufficient. It's never going to be enough. The moment you think about His goodness, He's infinitely more. The moment you think about His power, He's 
infinitely more. The more you think about his wisdom, he's infinitely more wise. The more you think about his mercy, he's infinitely more merciful. What, whatever you think about him, he's more. You can't contain him. You, you can't contain the bottomless riches, the, the immeasurable goodness of who God is. And that's the beginning of worship. That's why you and I struggle with worship so much outside of these 30 minutes on Sunday mornings is because we've tried to contain him in something that is, is understandable. I mean, listen to me, maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with your faith. Like you, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, but you're here today listening or you're watching online listening because you're seeking. You're, you're trying to understand. You want to know more about God. You want to understand this relationship with Jesus. But let me, let me let you in on a little secret. Sometimes what that looks like is you're actually searching for certainty. You're hoping that, that I can get all my answers, I can, I can find out all the questions I've had, and, and, and God can make sense of what happened in when I was 12, and He can make sense of what happened in my failed marriage, and He can make sense of this that I'm going through right now. But let me tell you, you're, you're not ever going to get all of Him figured out. And if you're waiting until you understand all of who He is, you'll never know Him. And at some point, every Christian has had to come to the point where we just say, I don't know, but he's God. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but, but he's God. One, one person said it like this. He said, a God who could be fully grasped is no God at all, but merely an image of ourselves. You see what he's saying? He's saying if, if you can put your mind around everything about God and you can fully understand him, it's probably because he's more like you than him. But at some point, you have to say, if he's God, I'm not. And he's different. And our God might be a little too small. Because the real God is far richer, far wiser, far more merciful. He's more than all of our questions, all of our concerns, all of our fears, everything in our life, He's more. And when you see God like that, it causes you to search your own heart. And this is the next point, searching our hearts. Look at verse 34. Paul goes on to say, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Paul is actually quoting two Old Testament questions here. And one of them, the second one, comes from the story of Job. And if you know the story of Job, it's a fascinating story in the Old Testament, the oldest story in the Old Testament that we have. And, and you have this, this incredible account of a man who was powerful and influential, and he kind of had everything. He was the guy everybody looked to and said, he is the upstanding, upright man of our society, and then he lost it all. He lost his wife, his kids, his possessions, his house. Everything in his life was taken away. Suffering swept in and it was all gone. And the rest of the book of Job is, is wrestling with this question, why? Why, God? Why, why would you allow this? And his friends try to answer and his wife tries to answer. He tries to answer. He's trying to wrestle with that. What, what am I supposed to do? How could this be the reward for my life? How could this be what I get with all my faithfulness over these years? And you know what God does when he breaks the silence at the end? This is how God breaks the silence. He says, who are you? Who are you? 
In Job 41, he says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Is mine. God was reminding Job that Job was small, but God was big. He was big. See, the, the bad news of us being small is, is not really bad news because it comes with the good news of God is much, much bigger than you imagine. Much bigger. And see, Paul is confronting what, what's at the depth of our heart, this, this hidden pride when he's bringing back to memory this story of Job by asking that question. He's, he's going to the depths of our, our heart and he's, he's dealing with what usually only surfaces in our sin or in our suffering. That there's this pride deep within that, that really doesn't want to give way to the fact that God is bigger than us, and so we hide it. And then it comes out in all kinds of different ways. It comes out in our bitterness. It comes out in our fear. It comes out in our relationships. It comes out. And Paul is saying, this is what's keeping us. This is what the barrier is from seeing a God that's this big, is the pride that's right in here, right inside. See, pride is, is the hidden problem within me and within you. It's the barrier to praise. It's the barrier. In February of 1911, there was a man, uh, I'm probably going to butcher his name, uh, Gaston Herveo, I think is how you say it. Uh, he's a Frenchman, and he, he was inventing a, a new parachute for pilots at the time. And he, he was inventing this parachute, and he was testing it off the Eiffel Tower, which was recently built in his day. And so he, he's testing this parachute, he's getting everything ready, and uh, it's, the day comes, and he climbs up on top of the Eiffel Tower, he takes a deep breath, and he goes for it. And the parachute goes all the way to the ground, lands safely, but the key difference in the story is he wasn't on the parachute. He had a 160-pound dummy that flew down at the bottom and landed safely. Now, there was a guy who was also another parachute inventor who heard about his test and called it a sham. His name was Franz. And Franz decided that he was going to do what, what Gaston didn't do. He was going to go himself because he told everybody in the news, this guy isn't really confident in his parachute because he won't even go himself. And so he decides he's going to jump. And now all the team of experts told him he's crazy. He said, you're going to break your neck. You're going to die. What are you doing? And he went forward. And he, now normally, from what I was reading about the story, normally they had parachutes that were about 700 feet of fabric, square feet of fabric. And you had to jump from about 250 feet to get enough air to, to make the parachute work properly. His parachute was only 350 square feet, and he was only going to jump from 180 feet. And again, the experts tried to stop him. They told him, this is a bad idea. You're going to hurt yourself. And he said, watch, I'm going to do it. My parachute is superior. And so he uh, starts to test it. He tests, ironically, with dummies first and uh, throws it 30 feet off and, and the dummies crash and fall apart. And then he tests it with himself 30 feet with a haystack and crashes and uh, doesn't work. And then he tests without a haystack 20 feet up jumps off and breaks his leg. And then even after breaking his leg, he decides, I'm going to go forward with this, goes all the way to the top of the Eiffel Tower, 187 feet, and jumps. He fell for four seconds, got up to 60 miles an hour, and ended in a pile of dust. 
He died from pride on impact. He died from pride. See, the problem with pride is we often don't see it until it's too late. Until it's too late. Lurking right beneath the surface in all of us. Our predators, there's dangers within us. The, 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 The dangers outside are real, but the dangers inside are just as real. Do you hear that? that and like I said earlier, they, they come out in, in strange ways that, that we don't call them pride because we, we think of them differently and so we don't see it as pride, but it comes out in our bitterness and our anger towards God for what happened. The questions we never got answered, the, the problems that never got solved, the, the pain that never really got dealt with. Or it comes out in our anxieties and our fears that we're just not sure about everything, and so we're always clamoring for control and hoping that we can get this to work and that to work, and we've got this massive puzzle we're always trying to solve. Because we're prideful. In my fears and my anxieties, I think that I can be the one to make it all work. In my bitterness and my anger, I'm prideful because I think that I would have done it better than God. Do you hear that? And so the, 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 the amazing thing about grace is that God actually exposes that before it's too late. He's like that team of experts that say, this is a really bad, dangerous idea. Don't do it. See, sometimes in, in Christianity, uh, we get lied to and we think that mature Christians don't struggle. Some of us have been lied to, maybe still kind of accepting the lie that that maturity in Christianity looks like I don't struggle like I used to. That back then I had problems and I needed God and thank God He delivered me out and now in my new life with Christ, everything is wonderful and fine and I might have a few little slip-ups here and there, but I don't really struggle. And so the mature life in Christ looks as if, in this lie, everything is fine. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? Wonderful. But the reality is, and listen to this, this this is the mystery of maturity. The mystery of maturity is the more, uh, or the closer you get to God, the more you see your sin clearly. Because the closer you get to God, you you see His his beauty and His wonder and His, His grace and His love, and you see all the things that you're not, and you look at yourself and you think, I'm nothing like Him. I thought I was like him, but now I got a little bit closer and wow, he's so much greater. He's so much more beautiful. He's so much more perfect. And you start to see yourself differently. And then as you get closer, this is the the irony. You actually feel sometimes worse than you did before. Right? You, You feel like you're not as good of a Christian because now you see all the things you couldn't see. Now you see how selfish you are in your marriage. And now you see how you talk over people at your job. And now you see how, how arrogant it is when you talk to your kids about things that you uh, are concerned about and you struggle the same way. Now you see things that no one else saw, maybe even. But here's the beauty of it. Now that you get close enough, you, you actually begin to change. You just don't maybe see it as much. And then other people look at you and they say, wow, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you you were a different person. 
and you feel like the same sinful, unworthy follower of Jesus. But it's because you're getting actually closer. You're getting closer to him. And you're seeing him for who he is. Right? This is what God loves about our worship. God, God loves that worship isn't about us. It's about him. And so you don't have to be afraid in worship to take yourself to him. In fact, what he wants is the real you. He wants the real you with all your fears, all your pride, all your arrogance. He wants all of it to come to him and give it to him. To give it to him. And say, God, you are worthy. This is what's true about me, but I want to focus on what's true about you. I want to focus on how wonderful you are. I want to focus on how faithful you are. And it's actually when you bring it to him that he begins to transform you. And you find out that when you bring it to him, he was already searching you the whole time. And this is the last point of searching God. Look at verse 36. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right? The, the phrase here, all things, it refers to all of creation in all of history for all of eternity. If you ask where, it's from God. If, if you ask how, it's through God. If you ask why, it's for God. It's to Him and through Him and for Him for all things, for all eternity, always. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, what he's saying is just a summary of the gospel story. The gospel story is nothing more than God initiates everything. He, he moves first, and then He gets the work done, and then He saves the work, and He redeems the work, and He, he holds on to it. He's the source. He's the means. He's the destination. He's, as we sung, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. And so the only hope of the gospel, the only hope of the good news of Jesus is that God does it all. And it's all for Him. It's all for Him. He, he makes the move to make Himself known. You see this in Jesus, right? You see this with Jesus and Zacchaeus. We talked about this in Grow Class last week. I think it was last week. And we talked about how Jesus was, was coming through the town. And Zacchaeus, if you know the story of Zacchaeus, he was hated by everybody. Zacchaeus was the man that was hated by the Jews because he was a tax collector, but not only was he a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, which meant he had, he had bought the rights to take taxes from everybody in their whole region. And get this, he wasn't just hated by the Jews, he was hated by the Romans because he himself was a Jew. But the Jews hated him even more because he was taking their money and giving it to the Romans. Like he, he had no friends, Everybody hated Zacchaeus, probably even Zacchaeus. But he had heard about Jesus, and he heard that Jesus was coming into town. And he hears the crowds coming, and Jesus is coming as he's passing through, and the crowds are lined up along the road. And Zacchaeus, as you know from the, maybe the children's song, he was a wee little man. He was vertically challenged. He couldn't see over the people. And so he climbs a tree. This dignified, wealthy man, this powerful person in their, in their society, he climbs a tree which would have been one of the greatest shames, but he was desperate. He was desperate to see Jesus. He's seeking him out. He's longing for him. And he gets to the top of the tree and he catches just a glimpse of Jesus coming down the road. And to his shock, as he settles in, Jesus looks up in his direction and he says, Zacchaeus, he knew his name. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight. 
And Zacchaeus is like, what, what are you talking about? Coming to my house, who are you talking to? How do you know my name? What, what is going on here? Why would he invite himself over to my house? See, it may seem a little odd that Jesus is acting like a king. Jesus is intruding into his life. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to wait for you, Zacchaeus. I'm going to come and I'm going to speak into your life and I'm going to bring redemption and salvation where everybody else had given up on you. Everybody else has said, we hate you and we wish you would die. Everybody else said, there's no hope for him. Everybody else said, this was over. Zacchaeus is done. But I'm coming to your house. And salvation is coming to this house today. And he comes over to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus is transformed, not just in his words, not just with a confession of faith, but with his life. And Zacchaeus turns around and he says, because of you, Jesus, I'm going to now give all my money back that I stole unjustly. I'm going to give even more. I'm going to give interest on what I stole because you have changed my life. I no longer worship this false, tiny God called money. I no longer worship this false, foolish God called status and privilege. I worship you. I give you my life. Why would Jesus do that? It's because that's the glory as God that we worship. This is the glory of God, to search for those who are impossible to save, to die for those who don't deserve salvation. The wisdom of God's glory is hidden in Christ, but it's shown on the cross. Right? 1 Corinthians 1 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God, God's glory, not your glory. What kind of glory seeks the worst of sinners? What kind of glory risks his reputation for everything? What kind of glory suffers at the hands of his own creation? What kind of glory dies on a cross for his enemies? What kind of glory forgives every and all sin that's ever been committed by his people? Jesus' glory. And what we consider the foolishness He considers His faithfulness. He's a God unlike any other. He's a God worthy of all of our worship. He's a God set apart from every God that we fashion in our minds. He's a God beyond measure, beyond ability, beyond limits. He is a true God. And that's the God we worship. He's a God who calls us to declare His worth. His worth. And as we close... I want to ask you, do do you sense him searching you out? Because really the ultimate hope of the gospel is not that we would seek him and worship him, but that he would seek us so that we can worship him. And so you may be here today and and your, your experience in life is not what you wanted it to be. You're struggling right now. You're you're trying to make it day by day in your marriage, in your friendships, at your job, whatever it may be with your kids. And, and, And there's so much pain that you find it hard to praise. And God wants to tell you today, I'm I'm seeking you. I'm searching you out where everybody else has given up on you. His glory isn't selfish. His greatest glory is that he would give himself to you. His greatest glory is that He would let you in on all the riches of who He is. And so He invites us today. He invites us because He's already been seeking us. He invites you now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
are overwhelmed and can't describe with words. We can't describe it in our hearts, our minds, our mouths, who you are and all that you've done. It's inscrutable. It's beyond description. It's beyond our understanding. And yet God, in our, in our fallible, feeble ways of trying to communicate, we give you glory. We give you all that you deserve. We give you all that you're worthy of. Everything in our life, from beginning to end, you are Alpha and Omega. From our first breath to our last breath, from our dying in our sin to our rising in Christ, it's all you. It's all you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we know that, that we would know at the deepest of levels your love for us that is your true glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.